Hello everyone, I'm Theo Hill. Welcome back to One Day at a Time in Recovery in Baltimore, a podcast where I talk one-on-one with other folks like me who are dealing with their own addictions and recovery, and where we listen and learn together from each other's stories. Uh, Before I get started with my distinguished guest this evening, Uh, I'd like to welcome everyone back who's been dealing with this pandemic over the last year. We've won a few folks and we lost a few folks. But I just want to encourage everybody who's in recovery, who's just coming back from a relapse, or who's thinking about recovery, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, In addition, I would like to inform everyone that I'm here doing this podcast at my home and I have all my four grandchildren upstairs. So you might hear a little noise in the background. It's just not quite like we are in the studio. So we just ask you to be patient and bear with us. Thank you. And this episode is very special. I have a gentleman who's come all the way from New York to join us. And uh, his name is Robert Cantor. And he has a powerful story to share with us. Robert, welcome to One Day at a Time. Theo, it's an honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me in your studio of, of love and recovery and your beautiful grandchildren, and um, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Robert, you were born in Brooklyn, New York? I was born in Brownsville, a little of a rough area, Theo. Mm-hmm. Got beat up a lot, and I mean, I could tell you the, the down and dirty stuff. I was, you know, molested. I was this, I was that, but um, it was a little bit of, uh, I got banged up a little bit. Let's put it that way. Um, and um, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, can you tell us when you first got involved with substances? Well, let's see. You want me to just backtrack a little bit? I'll, I'll sure. backtrack and, and pick it up from sure. you. So the, all that stuff happened when I uh, grew up in Brownsville, and um, we moved to Queens. My mother's from Morocco. May she rest in peace. Uh, she's an immigrant, and my father... Um, was born here, but I never had a relationship with him because he was very sick from emphysema. And so he was absent, and that created a lot of lack of acknowledgement issues with me as I was growing up, and those issues would manifest themselves into just a lot of different things, but a lot of rage, which got me into a lot of trouble. And, you know, when I drank and I used the other stuff, you know, it all went hand in hand. And, um, you know, when he died, you know, and, and it's funny because I took an Amtrak here, um, and it's the first time I've ridden on an Amtrak in 45 years. And I remember that because when I was 16 and my father died, I ran away from home and I hopped on and went down to Penn Station and I just took any train I could. I ended up in Jacksonville, Florida, you know, and freaked my mother out. And, um, but anyway, and I dropped out of Queens College and then I went to, uh, New Paltz. I was able to get into New Paltz in school and I'll get to the answer to your question. Um, and um, a lot of great stuff happened in college, and I was my coming out party and captain of the racquetball team and all of this great stuff. And uh, that's where my drinking and drug use began, but it was just getting started. It was just getting started. A lot of shameful things that went on also, and, you know, in, uh, in there I was physically abusive to my first girlfriend. And, uh, you know, I was told, Theo, when you talk about the shame, you take the power out of it. You know, I like to say now in recovery, there's no shame in my game. And um, and good things happen. This racquetball team I put together was just 
something like I do today with my advocacy work where I didn't get any money for it, but I built it from the ground up. I was a paddleball player in Queens, and that's what I loved. And I think that was my outlet when I was going through the stuff I was going through with my family. And, uh, you know, I, I went to four years of college, and I graduated, and I remember two classes. That's how many years I have lost with my drug use. The two classes were racquetball and rock climbing. That's all I remember. You know, I've lost decades of, of memory. So I left there. Uh, we went to Houston, Texas. My girlfriend at the time, who became my wife, we had $1,000 each to our name. And um, that's when that alcoholic behavior started. And I started getting, I got jobs in advertising agencies and a TV station. I started cheating on expense accounts. I started getting fired in appropriate relationships in the workplace. And if you remember those 900 telephone numbers, the 1-900 numbers, that was just the beginning of when they were starting to become popular. So I worked for this TV station selling airtime, and I was fascinated by it. And so I started helping these guys selling them airtime on the station and um, producing commercials for them. So I start making a lot of money, and the station manager calls me into the office, and he says, you're making too much money. We have to lower your commission rate. I said, you can kiss my ass. And I left, and I started a little company, an aid agency, out of my apartment in Houston, specializing in this industry, and within a year became one of the largest in the country. I was asked to appear as a guest on a panel on the Geraldo Rivera show. You remember the show, Geraldo Rivera? Mm -hmm. And um, to defend the industry from, because it had a reputation of being a porn industry. And so I'm here, and I mention this for a reason, because my advocacy work has come full circle, and I work with these same people. So I'm in this stage with law enforcement and educators and faith leaders, and I was so drunk and so high on that stage that I was just laughed off the stage. I couldn't even see the audience. I humiliated myself. I could never show myself again in the industry. So then what happened with that is we went back to New York, and I started running my own 900 numbers, and in 1994, when the industry imploded, I retired. You know, I made a lot of money, most of which would end up going up my nose. I'll backtrack and, and just tell you that um, I came to 12-step fellowship in October 21st, 1992. Everything in my world had collapsed around me. Alcohol was my best friend. Alcohol was my worst enemy. And um, I don't even know if I wanted to come to our fellowship as much as I just needed to take an action. I couldn't go back to the emergency room anymore. I couldn't, you know, there'd been so many I stopped counting and the rehabs and like all of us Theo I lived the life of the unspeakable and um, I don't know why I suffer from and I'll use the correct you know the political terminology alcohol use disorder substance use disorder I don't know why but I will tell you that I feel I was graced with it because of the life I have and the service I can do with my advocacy work now so in a nutshell, I tried to squeeze in uh, whatever it was, 34 years of my life in about five minutes. <laughs> Tell me more about your work that you're doing these days to support other families that are dealing with addiction. Okay. So what happened from there is that um, I got sober. Um, I stayed sober for 10 years until five meetings a week became three, became one, became I'm cured. And a shot of tequila looked like a good idea, and it was a really bad idea. And I relapsed on Christmas Eve 2002. And um, crack houses, shooting galleries, S&M dungeons, I mean, I, 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 all of that stuff that you know, you know well from whatever you experienced and what we hear in the rooms. And um, 
after three years of just beating myself up and living the unspeakable, someone, I was outside of a meeting up in Westchester where I got sober and, and I was in my car and I was crying because I couldn't get sober. It wasn't sticking again. And my friend knocked on the window and she said, why don't you either dive in, either dive into this with both feet or go back underground? And I can't really tell you why that was what my turning point, but it was. And so three years to the date, Christmas Eve 2005 was my last drink and drug. So I'm in my 16th year now. And, um, and the difference is I go to a meeting pretty much, Theo, every day. I don't mess around because five will become three, will become one, will become I'm cured. So in this last journey, you know, like they say, strap yourself in, you're in for the ride of your life. Three years ago, my daughter almost overdosed. She also suffers from opiate use disorder and um, locked in an apartment with her drug-dealing boyfriend, not coming out, not communicating, you know, and this is my only child. And so in the past, my wife and I, my ex-wife now, tried to punish this problem away. We, you know, shunned her, we, we yelled at her, we embarrassed her, we didn't, you know, we, we didn't come from a place of love and compassion, we punished her, and she ended up where she ended up. Um, I heard of something called the Portugal model, where the country of Portugal reversed their heroin epidemic by decriminalizing it and helping people that suffer from alcohol use disorder and substance use disorder by giving them harm reduction tools helping them get to a rehab or a detox, telling them where it's safe to, to use drugs if that's what they want to do. And I said, let's come from this approach. So we, we met our daughter at a diner. She showed up high. I told her all these things. I shared my recovery with her, my story as I've shared with you. And we said, you know, we have your back. We're going to meet you where you are. We understand your suffering. I said, we said, we'll wait for an hour if you want to come back. We'll drive you to detox, and we'll stick with you, you know, through your recovery. And if not, you know, we just want you to be safe. So we waited for an hour, and we cried, and we didn't think she was going to come back. And an hour later, she shows up with a, with a black, you know, garbage bag full of her stuff. And we drove her to detox and drove her to rehab. And then she went to a sober living home and then a sober community, because I like to talk about that, and she's in her third year of sobriety. So what happened is I got this gift and, and my daughter got this gift of sobriety, and I said, let me do some volunteer work. And so I started volunteering for this nonprofit in New York City. And I started volunteering there as a parent coach, helping other parents. And one of the things they do is they write drafts of legislation for senators and congressmen and congresswomen, hoping they'll pick it up because it helps with their funding and with their image. So they did that. And Congressman Trone and Senator Gillibrand in the Congress picked up a bill called the Family Support Services for Addiction Act. It's money for families who have loved ones suffering. So I get invited to this press conference. I have no idea, just as a guest, just to observe. And when the senator starts introducing the bill, she pulls me out of the audience, unbeknownst to me, to start telling this story about my daughter. And the next thing I know, it's a, it's a, a public access interview and a radio interview, and then it's being quoted in Washington and on and on and on. And then I do a video podcast with my daughter, which was unrehearsed for an hour about all of this stuff and how, you know, it traumatized both of us and where we're at today. And I said, Theo, you know what? No one's really carrying this message internationally. You know, people, most people don't know that Donald Trump lost his brother to alcoholism. You know, most people don't know that Congressman Trone just started just started the Bipartisan Addiction Mental Health ta Opioid Task Force. And let's, get, let's let other countries know 
what's being done here and how much is being spent because it, it will be inspirational for them. So there was a radio interview in Australia and then I did something in Canada on live TV and I wrote an article for the Shingetsu news paper in a news agency in Japan and an op-ed in the Jerusalem Post. But I also I wrote an article for parents.com and I and, uh, have something next week with Talk Europe, uh, Talk Radio Europe and, um, and here I am. And I've never been happier in my life because what could be more, what more gratitude could I possibly have the fact that I, my daughter and I are sober and that we're living healthy lives and that we have a wonderful relationship and that we're, you know, giving back as well to other people. So from those days where, you know, I was on the Geraldo show when I'm, I'm drunk and high and sitting there with law enforcement and, you know, and, and educators and faith leaders, I'm working with these same people now trying to give back. So it's been a full circle for me. Wow. What a, what a powerful story. <laughs> um, what do you think is so important about sharing your story uh, about your life? Yeah, that's a great question, Theo. Um, they say the power is in the personal story. And um, in the 12-step fellowship that we subscribe to, um, shame is a huge thing that we address. In a lot of the steps, specifically steps four, five, eight, and nine, we talk about shame. In four and five, we write about it and share it with someone, a sponsor, within the rooms of the fellowship. And in step eight, we make a list, right? In step nine, we go out and we owe the, we make those amends to those people who we've inflicted that harm on. And we, we power wash our brain, we make room for the sunlight of the spirit, and then we go out and we work what we call those maintenance steps. So you have to address that shame, and when you address that shame, you t as I said, you take the power out of it. You know, that, that the, um, many, many people have suffered the things that you've suffered, the things that I have suffered, but they suffer in silence. And, and, and when, when that sharing of that shame becomes part of the recovery program, people, when they, that people are inspired when they hear other people share something. Like I just mentioned to you, I was molested. All right? You know, it's not something I'm going to broadcast, but there are many people, whether they're in recovery or not, that have experienced the same thing. And before they might not have said something, you know, they might come up to me after a meeting and say, hey, could I talk to you a little bit more about that? You know, I've been living with that secret for a long time. You know, what do I do? Can, you know, can I call you once in a while? Whatever the case might be. But addressing that shame, as you know, is part of our recovery process. And, and it's just something that we really need. Whether you're in recovery or not, it's something that's really important to address so that you can really live a life where, you know, you can enjoy your life and you don't have to carry around these big rocks of, of, of shame. Robert, when you say you're grateful, can you explain to the audience what you mean by that? Well, you know, like I said, Theo, I don't, I don't know why I suffer from uh, alcoholism and substance use disorder. It just, it is what it is. It's my lot in life. You know, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. I can tell you that had I not found the rooms, I would be dead, like most of us, if not all of us. But when I was, the best way I could describe my life before I crossed that line was I was rudderless, or as my therapist would say, I was a train without brakes. And, um, and I may not have been... Before that line, I may not have, of course, in that line, I may not have been, you know, my, my, 
life may not have been unbearable, but it was a hollow life. There wasn't substance to it. I certainly wasn't doing any exploration or inventory about myself, and I certainly wasn't being of service to anyone. So I had what I now look back on as a hollow life. I was just kind of, it was robotic. I was just, you know, day by day. And then when I had those 900 telephone number businesses, it was about making money. It wasn't about, you know, donating time or or donating money. It was always about me, 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 me. And so these magical steps have given me and like have filled in that hole and given me this gratitude and this top of mind awareness that there's much more to life than me, 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 me. And so, yes, you'll hear that term, as you know, grateful uh, recovering alcoholic, and it, and it really is true. I have something, I have a fellowship, and, and I, and, you know, and, and listen, look at the case with my daughter who survived an overdose and who is sober now. I mean, you know, did, did the conversation my wife and I had at the diner with her, did that save her life? No, she saved her own life, but that could have been, a, she will tell you that that was a turning point for her. That conversation, Theo, was not happening if I were drinking. You know, if I weren't sober and didn't have the, the, the tenets of our 12-step fellowship, I was not sitting there because I wouldn't care. I'd be, you know, as, as my daughter said to me once eloquently, she said, you know, I might be coming to your funeral. You know, I might have gotten sober. And, you know, so there is trem- a tremendous amount of gratitude on many levels. And, and, uh, and, and that's why I use that word. And I know you've also been you know we haven't talked about your story which is which is fascinating too and you know we're just we just i mean we don't deserve to be alive theo we just you know the places we went to what we how we banged ourselves up we just don't deserve to be alive so yeah gratitude i live with that every day and i'm glad to use it in my sentence every day can you explain to the audience the hard work and dedication that you give for not only getting you sober, but staying sober and clean. Thank you, Theo. Well, um, as far as I know, and I'm not a physician, I'm not going to practice without a license, but there is no cure for alcoholism. As far as why I'm an alcoholic, I have no idea. There's lots of theories, but that's, that's irrelevant. Um, so I have to be involved. You know, someone said that, you know, being in a 12-step fellowship requires a high level of commitment, a daily high level of commitment. And I know that if I, if I start letting life get too busy for me and I start prioritizing other things, that I'm going to lose the message and I'll go right back to that five meetings a week becomes three, becomes one, because I'm cured. Now, I've talked about my international recovery uh, advocacy work and working with families and legislators. There's a little selfishness in there, and that is that when they say, you know, in the rooms, Theo, service will set you free. When I do that service, I'm bulletproofing my sobriety. I am reminding myself every day of all the people that are suffering from, from opiate use disorder, all the parents that have lost their kids. There are so many. I know on Long Island, where I live in New York, at least 50 parents same story, their daughter or son in their 20s overdosed, fatally overdosed with heroin laced with fentanyl, with opiates laced with fentanyl. There was no Narcan around, and they got the call from the coroner's office. When I'm reminded of that, and I'm reminded of the gratitude that I didn't get that call uh, regarding my daughter, mm-hmm. 
And that service keeps very green in my mind that this is a life and death matter and that, you know, this illness will rip you apart if you don't do, the, do what you need to do. And, and then the other part of it is I, I go to our fellowship meetings at least five, six days a week. I take a day here or, or there, but I don't let my illness squeeze back in. So um, the service is a big part of it, the commitment, you know, the fellowshipping, all of that stuff so that I don't get back to that place where I forget that I'm, I suffer from a disease. And this in my life so far is the only thing I have found that has arrested my problem. Mr. Robert Kanza, I would like to thank you for sharing your story on this episode of One Day at a Time in Recovery in Baltimore. And listeners, I want to thank you for being with us. I'm Theo Hill. Let's talk again soon.